1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. I just spoke with Eva hemmings about her new book, Making Marie Curie, Intellectual Property and Celebrity Culture in an Age of Information. This is a Harvard University Press book that came out in 2015. Now, this is not only a book that you'll learn a lot from, so it's a very carefully argued, very insightful exploration into legal personhood, intellectual property, information, celebrity, and the ways that all of them are bound up in the creation and emergence of particular kinds of scientific and other personas in the modern period. Um, So it's a really fabulous way into these issues um, by following the life and career and name and branding and persona and selfhood and writing and work of Marie Curie It's also just a fascinating read. Um, This is a page-turner, and it may not seem to you immediately that, oh, a book on Marie Curie, that'll keep me up at night, but it really does um, in the best possible way. So one of the things I really loved about this book is Eva is very much a writer. Um, She's a beautiful writer, and she really makes you want to know more. Um, And so she gives us, in addition to these very, very careful very clearly articulated arguments about intellectual property, personhood, selfhood, and science, um, and Marie Curie and the other Curies in the making of these notions in this particular case and beyond, she also gives us stories about duels, about romances, about family dynamics, about kind of the absurdity of someone getting a second Nobel Prize, and that being kind of, ah, uh, beside the fact because they're embroiled in this media frenzy around their relationship with a married man. And that this all happened, right, in the book. So um, it's just a, a really cracking good story as well as a really fascinating analytic exploration of a very important theme in the history of science and beyond. So with that said, I'll leave you to it. Um, thank you so much for joining us for listening, for your support. And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. And definitely, if you get a chance, um, pick up a copy of the book and also check out the links to the videos of two of the duels um, that I'll post online through YouTube. So enjoy and thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Eva Hemmings-Bertian about her new book, Making Marie Curie. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Eva, and thanks very much, not only for making time to talk with me today, but also for writing a book that's such a pleasure to read. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it, and thanks for making the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start by talking, as is traditional for the channel, about how you came to the field. So what brought you to work on the history of science? Well, I think, I'm not even sure if I'm in the
0: history of science. I mean, this book (laughs) clearly then uh, perhaps (laughs) belongs to the history of science. But I've been interested, it's very much tied up with my previous work, because for many years I've been working on intellectual property and I mostly describe myself as a humanities scholar of intellectual property. I mean, my background is in literature studies or comparative literature, and I've worked a lot on translation. I've worked on questions of intellectual property, mostly copyright, of course, and the history of international copyright. But in the last few years, I've become increasingly interested in other forms of intellectual property, uh, primarily patents. And in a sense, that brought me closer to the history of of science in in different ways. And in combination with having held a tenure in in library and information science, where I taught a lot of classification history, well, I I slowly sort of moved through various interests, quite eclectic interests, I guess, um, towards science and technology studies or the history of science. And I read a lot of people in both these fields that I really enjoyed reading. So it was very much primarily Latour, actually, and and being inspired by a particular way of writing that moved me in that general direction. So, um, and I'd like to continue on this. um, I'd like to continue to work at least on the border of... um, history of science, science and technology studies and my own sort of background in intellectual property if I can manage it, that's where I'd like to <laughs> to place myself but it's very much um, I, I wouldn't say that it's a mongrel but but it's a hybrid territory i think very much where i am
1: i think history of science itself is hybrid territory right i mean a lot of us yeah yeah, a lot of us in the field i don't either don't primarily self-identify as having come from um training in history of science or otherwise or you know very um much hybrid um entities Mm -hmm. and and i'm definitely with you there so how did you come to work on Marie Curie in particular as the focus for this book?
0: Mm. Well, as I said, I, I've really wanted for a few years to move beyond the traditional topics of, of copyright history or of copyright in general, and being Swedish, of course, you know the, the Pirate Bay and, and all of that. Um, Sweden has a long history of, of being a pirate nation but and, and, and it's been very much. In the focus in media and and so on, but I grew a bit tired of that particular focus on copyright. So, and I became increasingly, I've become increasingly interested in in science and in my own. I forgot to say that, but I, but I think it also motiv- motivated by an increasing interest in my own work, not not as a sort of navel gazing, I hope, work, but but in the way that intellectual property has begun to. Have a real presence in academia, so so I'm really also interested in science, and the broad science and the broad meaning, as a way of also addressing my own uh, work in academia, which of course is very much affected by intellectual property today uh, in a way that you know traditionally we don't think universities or research being. <laughs> affected by intellectual property, but of course it is, and it has increasingly become so 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 it 's a personal interest, a trajectory, and a way of moving out of of a comfort zone within intellectual property and and getting to know another form of intellectual property um, patents then which is quite different from copyright so um, so uh, very much um, that was in the background and then my my there is a direct inspiration for the book, and it has to do with the Curie's decision not to patent uh, radio. So I was very much, that's where the book really started. I was really curious about this decision because it seemed, in a sense, very much out of sync with what's happening today. On the other hand, the decision wasn't um, in any way radical. I mean, it wasn't that odd, but, but it was the decision in itself that, that prompted, um, I was curious. So that's where it all began. And, and from that decision, I knew that there were a few other. So I began with the decision that was sort of the basis. And then quite early on, it, it, um, um, I decided what other elements I wanted to look at <laughs> in a kind of intellectual property history of Marie Curie, if, if you will.
1: So that's actually um, not only the beginning of the project, perhaps for you, but also the beginning of the first body chapter of the book. So I think that's a really nice segue to actually bring us into the body of the book itself. Now, um, the book, of course, um, as we've been discussing, focuses on Marie Curie. And it looks carefully at, as you put it in the introduction, the work that's gone into the making of Marie Curie, right, and the ongoing work of constructing Curie as a brand, as a fact, um, as Uh. an object. And there are three motifs that thread through the narrative that do this work and that help tie together the different moments in this history that you're bringing us into. The first motif is also the focus of the first chapter of the book, and that's the impact of intellectual property on science and research. And this is where we first meet this momentous, uh, it turns out to be, right, a momentous decision that the Curies make not to patent radium. Okay, so for listeners who may not be familiar with this history or, you know, hear us, saying, not to, oh, yes, that decision not to patent radium. Of course, right? We know what we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about this? Um, where were they at this point in their careers together, and um, what was so important at that point about that decision? Like, what what were they doing, and why would they have chosen not to patent radium, and, and was it a big deal at the time?
0: I don't think it was a big deal. I mean, the, the decision has many, I think, that's the way it seemed to me when i had when I was working on the chapter that this decision has many layers to it. I mean it, it is one of the most famous of decisions in the history of science. Um, on the other hand, it's also very much a construction i mean it, it is the idea of a particular stance. And, and, and I was also fascinated by how this idea sort of became perpetuated um, by Marie Curie herself or, or through various channels that she had at her disposal. So it is also a, a question of a construction of a particular kind of stance that becomes very important um, to Curie, I think, more important than I think I, I realized when I had... And I began working on the book, but I I don't think the decision in itself is particularly radical. So I'm not trying to sort of say that this is, oh, this was absolutely odd at the time or that they were, um, because they were working at a time, I mean... Pierre Curie had several patents. He had taken out several patents on, on instruments that they used, for instance. But, of course, here we're dealing with something else. We're dealing with a naturally recurring phenomena, We're dealing with a process. So it's a bit different, but it wasn't totally impossible that they could have taken out a patent. But to them, I think it's more a matter of having this decision be associated with a particular kind of disinterestness that then becomes The idea of the Curie's so so and and this and we don't know very much about. I mean, the sources that we have um, to our disposal um, in in tracing these decisions it's very scarce. We don't have very much. We have what Curie herself wrote um, in the biography of her husband, and um, apart from that, we have of course other secondary sources. But but so so I became. Fascinated by their collaboration uh, as partnership and what it meant, and I also became increasingly fascinated by the way that this decision has taken on a life of its own, partly through Curie herself, and partly through the way that she is now branded within the European Union as this, you know, the, the European excellence in research, very much. Tied to this particular kind of disinterestness, so there are lots of layers that um, I hadn't really thought about, but that you know uh, became clear as I as I started through um, trying to understand what patenting meant at the time and what it came to mean when she told the story of that time
1: as well. So Curie is, uh, or the chapter is exploring Curie's balancing act between this disinterestedness. Right, that you just mentioned and different kinds of interest. Now, and you say very clearly in the chapter that the decision that they made as at the time, even though it becomes a watershed moment, it's not controversial, right, at the time for all the reasons you've mentioned. um, And they're disavowing patenting in part um, as, as a way of kind of embracing or being or performing. Um, and or right performing the embracing of science for sciences Yeah. Now this winds up becoming really, really interesting and really complicated um, for reasons that may not be obvious to listeners um, at first listen right at first hear when they hear us talking about this because technically at that point, Marie Curie as a married, as a married woman, was not a person. No. Right, in the eyes of the law. And so no. this raises a question, and you pose this question for us in the chapter what would be the intellectual property related strategies of someone who is not allowed to hold property? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really, really interesting set of issues. And yeah. then you bring us into here um, as a way of exploring that. Like, what does it mean um, as someone who can hold property to deal with intellectual property decisions? You bring us into the different kinds of claiming strategies that Curie um, and her husband at this point were, u- were using um, t- or were making on um, radium that were not this intellectual property patent um, kind okay. of strategy. Exactly. So um, one of the things that they're doing as a way of claiming, um, claiming radium is they are uh, writing and performing a series of claim-making texts. Hmm. One of these is a series of notes um, that they present to the Academy in 1898 that outline the stages of their discovery. So these texts are really important for various reasons, and um, could you open them up for us? What, are, yeah. what What's the big deal with these notes, and what, for you, is most interesting about them? Well,
0: I think um, you're opening uh, for discussion on, on two things, but, but if I begin with the notes, I mean, this is the traditional way of claiming... Uh, discovery. I mean, this is what we're all familiar with. You know, writing articles or writing—they're called notes because they're very sort, they're very short. But they are. Um, but but through these three notes, we have um, we get presented with the discovery of radium, and of course, it's made by Marie Curie together with um, Pierre Curie. So and in the beginning, the first note, I think, is uh, by herself. So, what I was interested in, and this is kind of, you know, things that you think about today as well, when you think about how articles are written, who gets to be named first, who's the last, when we're talking about 500 persons uh, being authors, for instance. So, I'm really interested, because of my background, I think, also in how is authorship and authority claimed, and, and what did they do? And and of course, in a sense, they are trying out different combinations, I think, of how her name should be written and how it is combined with that of her husband. And and I think, I mean, I'm not trying to make, I hope I'm not trying to make a too simplistic argument that they were sitting at home, you know, deliberating that, well, if we put you first here, or if we have, if we use Sklodowska and not Curie, but, but there is, there is something happening, I think, in how the claims around radium um, are strengthened by the way in which authorship is presented in these articles. And and that's nothing revolutionary, of course, to say that, because, you know, that's how publishing, <laughs> how it works um, uh, with authorship. But so I think that was an extremely important way for them um, to strengthen the claims of radium um, in various ways. But the really interesting thing for me was the fact that she wasn't a legal person, because this open, because this was when you work with intellectual property. I mean, some things are really silly that you take you take so much for granted that you shouldn't take for granted. But one of the things that you really do take for granted when you work with intellectual property, it is that people are persons. So, and persons can hold property. And of course, the law doesn't govern every decision that you make. The fact that you can hold intellectual property doesn't, you know, predispose you to think, um, not not necessarily. I mean, I think it's a baseline proposition, sort of, but but when it struck me by reading, for instance, Cheryl Hamilton's great book about um, legal personhood, it struck me that, well, she wasn't a person. And, and although this doesn't explain everything, it's an interesting way for me, working with intellectual property, to hypothetically at least think that this fact could have some influence on how you perceive yourself as Um, you know, owning or controlling or having authority over a particular kind of knowledge. So, again, I'm not sure that I... uh, So it was more of a way of questioning my own sort of presuppositions on how intellectual property comes about and and to think that this could possibly have had an influence on how she saw herself as um, a scientist, um, so to me that, and I'm, I'm still quite fascinated about the idea of legal personhood and, and I find it interesting to think more about that even if I'm not particularly working on it right now. But it was an important part of trying to understand um, how, more, how she could have um, constructed strategies or worked with strategies that became a bit external to the property system, if that makes any sense.
1: It does. It it makes perfect sense. And I think one of the beautiful things about the chapter is that you're bringing us into um, the importance of some of those strategies in terms of how the groundwork is laid early in this part of the story um, for phenomena that we'll see extending through the rest of the story, even ultimately up to the last chapters. And these strategies um, early on involve naming and they involve pronouns. Um, so this is related to what you were just talking about, but just to kind of shine a light on this. Now, naming was really important here, and you've already alluded to the fact that her name actually changes over the course of these three notes. And I think you say here, and I love, I love this sentence, so I'm going to say it for listeners so that they can love it too. For each note, radium gets stronger and Marie Curie weaker at oh. least in terms of how the naming progresses now the chapter talks about the ways that she negotiated the different forms of ownership and property available to her both as part of an i and as part of a we mm. and this becomes really interesting when you take us into the decisions that she was making about how she was writing about this um, both um in yeah. a you know a book Pierre Curie um, and also elsewhere. So can you say a little bit about that because that seems like a really important part of this story. Yeah, I think
0: um, I mean she was notoriously um, shy is the wrong word perhaps but I mean she didn't like to talk about herself uh, all that much and of course uh, ultimately she had her youngest daughter uh, talk about her or or, or help construct um, the myth of Curie but there is a book where she really sort of takes the opportunity to talk about herself in a way that I think she felt was uh, acceptable. And, of course, now I'm sort of free, I'm jumping the gun a bit because there are events that will take place, um, uh, the duels, for instance. Uh, There there are things that will happen in media that will no doubt uh, influence the way that she feels that she can handle uh, the public image of herself and her, and her husband, but we might uh, get into that well, later on. Well, yeah. I <laughs> but, 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 uh, but I think that the biography of her husband, uh, Pierre Curie, um, the book Pierre Curie, is, uh, uh, is a really interesting um, vehicle for her to present her own legacy as well, because I think that's what she's doing, and i i looked through i went through the different drafts, and of course this is things that just pop up it's It's like when you uh when you access various uh translations, it has to do with to see how a particular argument or how a particular finite text uh gets to be a finite uh, or published text and, and and I love um following that kind of material and and when you look at the various drafts. That are available in the Curie archives, then you can see that she's really sort of struggling with or really working with uh, is this supposed to be me or is it we or is it who is the one who decides? And you know, so she's very carefully framing her own role in, the hist- in this history world, or this decision. And I think um, that shows a Curie that maybe we haven't really seen before it's not a better career or a worse career it's just you know a person who is really trying to to um to um, present her own i think um role um in this collaboration and she's doing it 20 years after the fact so i mean there's nobody there to contradict her she can she can she can really do the story herself, um, and, and yes. So the, I think it's a very careful balancing act of the I and the we and the he and the um, and what they did in common. Um, and of course, this narrative is then later on added to by Eve Curie's um, biography of her mother in Madame Curie, where many of these decisions are again. Framed um, in such a way that they present a, a picture that the Curie clan uh, perhaps, then wanted to sort of, or, or wanted uh, Marie Curie to become. So we have we have texts um, where we can follow this. Or we have drafts and texts that we where we can follow this making of Marie Curie by herself in a way.
1: So as we move from this kind of making to another kind of uh, making, we move from property to persona. Chapter two brings us into a second motif that threads throughout the whole book, and this is what you call the emergence of celebrity culture and its role in shaping the image of the scientist. This chapter looks very closely at this arena of celebrity culture at the time, where there were also important roles, as you demonstrate here, for scientific credibility, scientific authority, but those roles wind up being very different from the work that they did in the scientific arena. So in this arena, Curie became a persona. Um, and she became very famous. And this was true, um, as you take us through, at the time that she and her husband were both alive and they were working together, they get their first Nobel Prize, they're already celebrities of a sort. But after he dies, um, and he dies in, you know, in an accident, he's run over um, yes. uh, right on the street, um, after he dies, her life goes on, and the way that her life goes on, and the way that... the decisions that she's making um, and the events of her life get picked up by the press really Mm. transforms the story. So there's a particular year you bring us into that's really... Um, momentous, and um, in, in terms of understanding these transformations, and this mm. is the year 1911, and this brings us into many fascinating things that are happening, including but not limited to these duels that yeah. I've been <laughs> alluding to. Yeah. Okay, so that before we get to the duels, um, there's something else happening in her life in 1911, and that is her candidacy in a particular academy. and And yeah. so, can you take us into that? What's going on there? And What's important for us to understand about that from your perspective to understand the larger argument that you're making here in the chapter? Yeah.
0: Um, well, as you say, they, they became really sort of global celebrities or international celebrities with um, the first Nobel. I mean, she was awarded two Nobels in 1903 together with her husband and Henri Becquerel, and then in 1911, which is the year, that chapter Two really revolves around, and these two momentous events <clears throat> the first is this candidacy to the French Academy of sciences and um, there there had been no woman uh, in the French Academy of science um, so her candidacy was the first, and her husband had been Pierre Curie, had been admitted to the um, academy um, but a candidacy of the kind that she launched um, could required quite a lot of, you know, visits. You had to leave your calling card. You had to um, be nice to people, suck up to people, but and um, and there were several other uh, persons who were also uh, possible candidates at the time. Uh, but she had a good, she had a really good shot. But as it turned out, in the end, she lost. <laughs> to Branly with I think two votes or something like that in the end and and this was a huge I mean it was a huge thing in the media that she launched the candidacy to begin with and it was a huge thing in media that she um, lost the candidacy and and I there's a wonderful image that's in the book one of the few images that I have which is from a um, magazine for women or a journal for women called Femina where um, there's a wonderful image which says something like the photographer is without pity and it shows paparazzi outside the laboratory when she's, when she's re- returning home you know, from this um, from the verdict and, and, and this was a really hard blow I think for her because she never again launched uh, a candidacy and it wasn't a strange thing to lose and then launch uh, another candidacy because I think Pierre Curie took him three times or something like that before he got into the academy. And uh, Langevin, the man whom she'd be having this um, romantic affair with, I think it took him five times to get into the to the academy. So she could just have stepped back and said, "Okay, doesn't work now, but I'll try again later on." But she never did, mm-hmm. um, uh, and you can only speculate as to why. But using the same method as I did with the construction of the of the decision not to patent, looking at how she wrote about this. In Pierre or in her own autobiographical notes, you can see that she almost uses a kind of reverse engineering or, or a reverse tactic. So here she, she makes it look like um, it was other people's decisions that sort of, you know, she, she <laughs> um, so she she's very careful um, to say that I'm a member of many academies, but I've always been invited to these. I haven't applied for them, et cetera, et cetera. So, so he or she frames this uh, quite differently. Um, yeah.
1: So just as, I mean, you're bringing up some really interesting points here, and uh, the larger, con- or one larger context within which we can understand what's going on here is the role of, um, and really the changing role of the name of the scientist across mm. these Dichotomy, or what we might think of as dichotomies that are um, emerging and transforming at the time. So we've already talked a little bit about this idea of pure science, right? And, yeah. um, and so pure versus applied, right? And here you're bringing us into the negotiation of the scientist's name also across um, – Perhaps boundaries or dichotomies of public and private, and we're seeing that they're not so. These boundaries are pretty blurry, right? They're not so very warm. much so. Yeah. Um, and the you know the image of the of Marie Curie hiding from the paparazzi or covering her face—it's it's super super striking. And one of the things that's happening also. In her private life, or perhaps not so private life, <laughs> um, it does relate to this other romance um, that uh, you just uh, alluded to, right? So oh. this was a romance um, with actually a married man, or at that point um, in the press um, was ta- was uh, he was known as a married man, right? After yes. the accidental a hus- death of her husband, um, and this long story short. Um this receives abundant um press coverage and ultimately results, among other things, in five duels um yes. over her good name among journalists and um her romantic partner as well. Two of these at least are available on YouTube and I watched yeah. them last night yeah. uh, and I made my partner watch them too and he and he was also very surprised. Um yeah. it's just a super striking Moment that you're bringing us into. So, can you talk about what's happening? Of course, we have to talk about this um, uh, in terms of these duels, and what for you is most important about understanding these?
0: Well, um, the story again is that she, um, in the summer of 1910, uh, becomes romantically involved with um, Paul Langevin, who is, of course, an almost equally famous. Scientist in 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 France and um, they knew each other very well. He had been working with um, Pierre Curie and and her as well. So they were old friends. And he was married. He had four children. And but of course, it wasn't very strange for a French man to um, have a mistress. However, it was very strange for even a widowed Marie Curie to to take a lover who was um, married and. Um, this relationship went on for, I think, about a year before something happened. They, had, they shared a, a tiny apartment um, close to the Sorbonne, and they met, and there wasn't much um, to talk about. But they also exchanged letters, and these letters were stolen from this apartment. And it will take too long to go into the details, but eventually... Uh, the letters become published well, you can always say you can say that she was being blackmailed mm-hmm. uh, for a certain period, um, knowing that the letters were stolen and that they could be made available or, or could be published, but nothing happened but then they they become um, published, and uh, it was a fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by, and, and this is the right wing, extreme right in France, which is very, it's uh, royalistic, it is nationalistic, it is anti-Semitic, Semitic, and um, it's really a, an extremely powerful cultural movement in France, which is really odd because it's so small in a, in a way in numbers, but it's extremely powerful and they uh, publish the letters, and this leads to a barrage of discussion um, in the newspapers. And the duels, then, are duels between newspaper men, between reporters. And um, when I started to read about dueling, um, I learned that many duels, both in Italy and in and in France, were <laughs> between newspaper men. So, so it was a kind of Activity that very much um, circulated around, of course, honor, upholding honor, um, seeing it as a solution to a problem that the courts couldn't do much about or that the courts were um, incapable of of solving in a satisfactory way. So we have five duels and four with a P of or. fencing and then to a one with pistols um, the the duel with pistols is the duel where uh, paul langevin is uh, mm. is part of uh, against one of the most uh, vitriolic of the editors who were against Curie so to speak so but that is a white duel so they they fire their weapons in the in the sky and nothing really happens but It it emerges during a month, November, um, in Paris, and almost exactly at the same time, she receives this telegram from the Swedish Academy of Sciences telling her that she's now been awarded the Nobel Prize for a second time.
1: By the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, and this happens uh, almost at the
0: same time. And the Swedish Academy... Is uh, working. Uh, they're working for a very, very long time. They're working um, as if nothing had happened. So they, they they check with Swedish diplomats. They check what's happening, and of course they they are read. They re- They read about it, so they know things happen. But but they go on planning the, the banquet as nothing would have happened um, until the Langevin uh, duel, uh, when the Swedish Academy, the secretary really gets cold feet and, and um, tells her that she better not come to Stockholm because this is just too much uh, and it's better to wait and let it, everything sort of blow over. And, and she responds and she says, uh, which is also an interesting um, uh, aspect, she says that, well, my private life has nothing to do with my science, so I'm coming. And she went and she, she took the prize and she was celebrated um, in a famous dinner Um, Oh, Oh, are you still there, Carla? I am. Oh, I am. Something, (laughs) well, she was celebrated anyway in a very famous dinner held by Swedish uh, female academics um, here in Stockholm, and she went home and she had a nervous um, breakdown. But but, um, I was really fascinated by the way in which the name Curie became this, and of course, it's her married name, so her husband, who is dead, but who becomes this huge um, um, figure for the right-wing press. So she is defiling a name that has been associated with this illustrious um, French scientist. So the name, and I think that is one of the aspects of the work in the book that became clearer as I, as I worked through it, the, just how important a name is <laughs> as, as a person, personal name. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone who is not a legal person, and then, of course, as a name for science, in a sense. So, um, and here she's really challenging um, the idea of the Curie name, at least for these um, right-wing, um, in the right-wing press. So it, to me, it was a fascinating instance of how her uh, persona started really to emerge full-blown from this catastrophic <laughs> media um, coverage that she was submitted to during that
1: year. Now, as we move to the third chapter, we move to the United States, and we move a little bit later in Curie's life um, as a person, as a scientist, as a professional, as a name, um, as an object. And this is a really fascinating um, context in which we see the negotiations around a gift, Now, this may sound um, like a relatively simple proposition, right? Um, But it turns out to be very, very, very much not very (laughs) simple. So Curie made her first trip to the U.S. in 1921, and it was to receive a gift. And that gift was one gram of radium. And the funding to purchase that gift had been organized by a woman who would become an incredibly important figure in the life of Marie Curie. And this is a woman named Missy Brown Maloney. Mm-hmm. Um, now, can you uh, w- briefly explain a little bit about her? Who's Maloney and what do we need to understand about her? Well, it would be nice
0: if somebody wrote a book about Missy Brown <laughs> Maloney. She's, she's an astounding uh, person and, and very little is written about her as far as I've been able to ascertain. But Maloney was um, Editor of a woman's magazine called uh, Delineator. And Curie was her idol. And she managed in 1920, I think it was, to to, um, hook up with Curie in Paris to see her, to um, talk to her and uh, do an interview. And during that interview, um, Curie told her just how poor her laboratory was and how little radium she had. I mean, this was after the war, Europe. You know, science was really sort of uh, there wasn't um, a lot of money for science. So, and Maloney, of course, is this Park Avenue um, socialite. She's rich, uh, she has connections, so she travels back home to the States and then she sets in motion this whole tour around the fact that if she can collect through something very much um, similar to what we would call crowdfunding today, or crowdsourcing, Um, um, the money for to buy a gram of radium to Curie, then if she managed that, could Curie promise to come to the United States to accept it and to do a tour? And of course, that's exactly what happens. So Curie travels to the United States in 1921, together with her daughters, and she does this breakneck. I mean, I've seen the schedule. It would have killed anyone. I mean, there are honorary degrees here. There are cocktail parties there. It's it's just amazing um, that she stood on her two feet after those um, two weeks. But Malone's campaign is really a fascinating um, and almost completely forgotten in although it's always mentioned in the Curie biographies, but she managed to get university women, uh, her own rich friends, but not as much as he had initially uh, thought to contribute to this, um, to this gift. And in fact, they collected, and that's the problem of the gift, that they collect too much money. So when Curie... She gets the gift from the hands uh, of the president uh, at the White House, and she, um, she goes back home with the gift, plus a lot of other materials um, and fees and stuff she's received. Um, but there's still money left um, in this gift, um, and that is the sort of beginning of the story in that chapter about how can Curie... <laughs> <laughs> who has gifted radium to the world, who is now getting a gift back from America's women, how can she possibly get her hands, I mean, to speak plainly, to get her hands on this gift to have to her laboratory in France? And, and so um, I was really, um, and the correspondence between Maloney and Curie is by far the most extensive piece of correspondence in the Curie archives. And it's amazing to follow, you know, their discussion on how can this, how, and and Maloney, she continues. She sends instruments, she sends money, she uh, connects Curie with the wealthy and the famous and the rich. um, So she really sort of helps during 15 years of friendship. She really does a lot for Curie in terms of money. So it's an interesting story of two women who are friends, but it's also a story of, of research funding, in, a sense, in the way that you never think about research funding right. because you see it as completely different from what they're doing. But um,
1: right, I mean, and it's also the story of thousands of, or a, almost a thousand, or more than a thousand women, right? Thousands Absolutely. of women, isn't it? Yes, um, because uh, this funding, this crowdsourcing was for donations from women specifically, which is right, an- another really yes. interesting part of this. So yes. the gift um, costs $100,000, and you, as you mentioned in this chapter, this is functionally the equivalent of more than a million dollars, 2014 dollars, right? And of course, um, it's very important um, for many reasons that this is a gift and not the money equivalent of the gift that's given exactly. to Curie. And so... Mm-hmm. And, Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Um, Because listeners might not um, really understand why. What's the big deal, right? What's the big deal? Why not give her just the cash equivalent?
0: No, but but she wouldn't. I mean, this is part of uh, the gift, is part of the way, I think, um, that the myth or the image of Curie as this this disinterested scientist begins to really consolidate. So... It's really, really important for her to, and of course, Maloney is really building up this image as well, you know, um, as this totally dedicated, um, disinterested scientist who really isn't at all interested in money, but she's interested in the sort of, um, raw material that, she, that can help us beat cancer because that's the ultimate, of course, that's the ultimate result that is sort of expected by Curie, that she will continue to do her research. And in extension, um, uh, there will be a solution to to cancer. (laughs) So I think it's really a part of the way in which the myth of Curie continues to evolve is this fact that money is not what it's about. It's about something else. (laughs) Uh, So it's important for Curie, in a sense, to distance herself or to be seen as continuing to be this disinterested person who cannot, so she cannot really... She can absolutely not be seen to be greedy or or wanting the money. Uh, So she has to sort of maneuver the the various interests around this money because many of the American women who had, um, especially the university women as a group, they also felt that it was quite possible to keep the money in the United States and to have them go to uh, American and possibly French scientist who would continue to do work in Curie's spirit or you know so that would have been a possibility, but Curie didn't want it she she really wanted control um, over that money for her own laboratory. Uh,
1: and the last part of the chapter, and um, we won't have time to talk at much length about this, um, so that we have time to move on to the yeah. Next sorry, chapter, if right? I'm no, <laughs> I'm no, not at all. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I, I just want to mention for um, yeah. for listeners that, um, of course, as you've mentioned, things get really complicated after that initial gift, and the chapter looks into not only. How um, Curie and Maloney and others are negotiating issues around this extra money, right, the radium fund, but also really interesting issues around um, an autobiography, right, and uh, uh, Curie's book about um, Pierre Curie as well, and sort of the publication and the authorship and all the issues surrounding those products also, Um, and also um, in a theme that has been important in the book prior to this even though we haven't articulated it and continues to be important after this you bring us into the important issues of inheritance what happens after death um, to this property these objects the name etc etc and so um, I won't you know ask you again to talk too much about that now (laughs) but I just wanted to mark the importance of the issue of inheritance as something that's very, very important here, and and perhaps it'll come up in uh, in our discussion um, a little bit later. Yeah. So as we move to the last body chapter of the book before the epilogue, we move into a really fascinating discussion of scientific property and bibliography. Now, this brings us into the third major motif that structures the book, and this is In your words, the question of how to organize scientific information as part of the modern infrastructure of knowledge. Now, by 1931... Marie Curie, who had again publicly disavowed intellectual property rights to radium, right? And we talked about this at the very beginning, was advocating for an expansion of intellectual property law, right? So the the chapter kind of takes us into the problem of how do we understand that? How do we understand um, what seems like a contradiction here? Okay. So here um, we're brought into Curie's work as a member of the CICI Commission of uh, the League of Nations. Now, this was a commission that's prioritizing two topics, bibliography and scientific property. So in order for us to understand Curie's own work um, along these lines, let's talk very briefly about these. What's um, So briefly put, what's important about bibliography in this period? What's the big deal, and why does it become such an issue for this committee? Yeah, well, <coughs> Kiri,
0: um, during the last decade of her life, then she's very actively involved in the League of Nations uh, work, and so here she is really the full blown internationalist, and that, and she becomes the um, chairman, the chairperson on in a subcommittee on bibliography, and and what they're interested in is of course the feeling of information overload. Now we know that information overload is a feeling that people have had since the 17th century, basically. But here we, we're really moving into an era after the war. Um, when, and Curie is, she's really, um, she's operating on an international arena. I mean, she's invited everywhere, she goes everywhere. She's really this international person. And she knows that science is increasingly becoming, it's always been international, but it's increasingly becoming international. And she knows that there has to be ways of trying to control information or gain access to what's happening around the world. So she takes a very active interest in um, abstracts, for instance. How can abstracts be written so that you know you, you easily can get an overview of what's being, being written or being done? So bibliography, or well, the importance of organizing scientific information on what's being written, is really something that is at the heart of what the League of Nations um, are interested in, and what Curie is interested in. And at the same time, which it, if we take intellectual property, if we look at it from the perspective of intellectual property today, then sort of bibliography is this way of maintaining uh, or openness. I mean, it, it depends on on again these traditional channels of publishing, the traditional ways of being found, making things open, making things uh, publishable. On the other hand, <laughs> the League of Nations takes this remarkable idea of scientific property, which is a complete failure, but it's a really interesting from, from an intellectual property perspective, a really interesting period when we are trying, when they are trying or at least thinking about um, protecting ideas, which today is completely, I mean, if anybody suggested it, you, you know, you would be shot dead. Almost. I mean, it, it, it would be awful if it, if it happened. But So we have sort of two almost contradictory things going on at the same time. And it's obvious um, if, we, if we're still in the Curie myth that she would take an interest in, in bibliography because that belongs, in a sense, to this area of openness or scientific information. But it's much more odd that she would actually come to almost advocate an extension of intellectual property into this strange uh, hybrid that is scientific property um, so so I was I find, I find that tension between those two quite quite interesting and the reason why she would do this why I'm not sure if that makes uh, any sense or even even if it's a tenable argument but I could only sort of conceive one argue one way, and that is that she's using it as a kind of leverage so that it becomes preposterous to do it. But if we if we um, maintain our interest here, we can sort of force the state's hand so that the state can give more money to, to research rather than... Um, because nobody wants it. it it's just a dead duck. And people think it's a very strange thing, but... Um, and of course, then France gets, through so her daughter, gets the CNRS. She's died by then, but then, you know, the French state goes in and, and really becomes a really important funder of research. So, but, but it's an extremely interesting period. The interwar years is an extremely interesting period um, in terms both of information or making information on scientific knowledge uh, accessible and of this idea of what can be done with property or what cannot be done with property. So she's in the middle of that. And I, um, that was really um, an interesting, um, interesting stuff that came up, I think, in, in that work.
1: So names continue to become very important mm-hmm. names and naming um, in this chapter. Um, the chapter pays special attention to the increasing importance in this period of the Curie name in medicine. Um, It also pays special attention to Curie's um, reticence about um, signing her name and and Mm. producing signatures um, of Mm. her own name, photographs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (gasps) So other names also become very important here. And these are the names of two plus one men um, who we haven't yet talked about, but who emerge as really central and really fascinating figures in this mm-hmm. chapter. Um, and these are two men, Paul Otlet, and um, if I'm, am I pronouncing that right? Yes, yes, okay. that's fine. And yeah. Henri Lafontaine. Lafontaine, yeah. And also another name who, um, or that may be familiar to listeners who have ever been to a library or used a library catalog, and that's mm-hmm. the name Dewey, of uh, yeah. Dewey Decimal System. So can you um, say a little bit about these men? Um, who are they, especially the first two yeah. um, in relationship to the third, and, and what's so important about them for the story that unfolds in this part of the book?
0: Well, today, Paul O'Tleer has a new lease on life. Um, he's he's now sort of hailed as one of the forefathers of the Internet. But basically, he and Henri Lafontaine were two pacifists. Uh, two Belgian, um, they worked in, in Brussels. And in 1895, was it, um, they started um, what? could be described as a bibliographic bureau. Um, they, they were really, uh, Otley is a megalomaniac, really, but during almost 40 years of collaboration, they're really focused on making science um, uh, available, or finding the instruments uh, to control this mass of information that they're referring to already in the, at the end of the 19th century then. And they do this by organizing as a um, bibliography and classification of course becomes very important so Melville Dewey is, is one of their idols as well, so they they tweak his classification system into a new um, classification system that is slightly different. But the best way of describing them is that they are developing a set of institutions that are all international. So the International Library, the International University, the International blah, blah, blah. Um, and they are all collecting these institutions um, in in Brussels. And they always have so much more, um, um, idea. they have huge ideas. I mean, Otler wanted to build a world city together with uh, Corbusier, Le Corbusier as well. So really sort of enormous ideas about what information was and how it could be contained and, and, and organized. And Curie meets Otlier, uh, but at the same time, the League of Nations are really sort of looking upon these guys as a uh, slightly wacko and perhaps not completely trustworthy people because they are very odd <laughs> in, in, in many ways. Um, so Curie meets them and she's influenced and by this. Um, Um, general movement, I would say, towards really understanding information, and of course what makes Othli so extremely interesting today is that he envisioned uh, computers, he envisioned screens, he envisioned connectivity in a way that actually uh, nobody had done before him, so he's very, very early with that, so he's a visionary in that aspect, so it, it is really the beginning of... Um, the context that we work in today with, you know, computers, laptops, information and everything. I, and that was, uh, you can see it sort of begin here in a way uh, around or in the interval years, although it had begun earlier, but in the interval years, it really sort of takes on a new urgency, I think.
1: And what becomes really interesting as we follow this story through um, into the epilogue is that this, um, a story that's unfolding uh, in its beginning stages, um, as you just described it, is also something that continues to shape the lives of many scholars today uh, mm-hmm. in terms of our engagement with online bibliographies, and especially anybody who's ever used WorldCat and is familiar with that mm-hmm. OCLC number, right? Yeah. In an interlibrary loan request, what's the OCLC number? Well, OCLC as an organization winds up patenting Dewey, Right. Like, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that Dewey itself as it like becomes a brand um, yeah. in a way? Um, and the epilogue really takes us into this part of the story, not just um, Dewey becoming a brand, um, but also the branding of the Curie name and the way that Marie Curie's family, winds up um, helping to produce and shape the branding of that name. Mm. So let's uh, maybe end our conversation or come to the conclusion of our conversation by talking about um, this epilogue discussion of names and branding.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's very
0: clear um, at least how the European um, commission or the European union has worked with uh, the Marie Curie action programs, which are sort of the, state the, the top programs for individual researchers in Europe are very um they're very good they're very difficult to get because the competition is is fierce and um when they launched on facebook a few years ago um they actually wrote that um, they called it the Marie Curie they made a reference to the Marie Curie brand. It wasn't the Marie Curie Action Program brand, but it was the Marie Curie brand. So I think in that sense, she's being, which is, I mean, the fate of being a public figure or a persona like Curie, that that we can do stuff to her (laughs) that we might like or, or not like, but... But it's certainly um, part of, of the way in which the European Union um, has worked with her. And it's now fascinating to me. And I gave a talk a while back where I had some students from, from Poland and from, and from the old Eastern um, bloc. Because now the program has been rebaptized, So it's the Marie Skłodowska Curie. Uh, program. And that is within the New Horizon 2020 program. And, and I, I'm sure that this is also a name that is now being, um, Sklodowska is finding its way back into the branding of QE, if you will. And, and that would be fascinating to, to look at if what that is the result of a particular Polish lobby in the European Union. I don't know, but it, it, it again goes to the question of the name and just how important uh, a name like Curie is, both then, as you mentioned earlier, as a standard, a scientific standard, for instance, the highest of sort of naming you can get, and also as a name for the Alfred Curie, for instance, cosmetics, which had nothing to do with Curie, but which causes her great concern during the, the end of her life. Because here we have a person who has the same, last name but he's a quack and um, you know it's, it's cosmetics and she's desperately trying to control the value of the name Curie against um those kinds of um of people so yes the name is um is really um something truly important in that whole history
1: so, even now that we're at the conclusion of our conversation, mm-hmm. there's, of course, a ton of material that we haven't had a chance to talk about. But if, is there anything in particular um, that we haven't talked about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: No, I think, I mean, to me, um, it was the, the legal uh, aspect of personhood was really uh, interesting thing that I uh, came across and that was important. So, And I still think there's lots more, of course, that could be done um, on the question of the name. But but apart from that, I think we've covered most of the basis, perhaps.
1: So now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you?
0: Well, I'm working on a continuation of the chapter on Otley and, and La Fontaine, so... Um, I'm, I want to do a project on the publicness of patents or rather on the the, the intersection between um, bibliography and patenting because, of course, patenting is part of public knowledge, although today most of us don't feel as if it is, <laughs> but, but it is. And, um, it's always been part of public knowledge. Uh, partly because it has had bibliography or gotten into the bibliographic systems and I'm really curious about what role if one can trace so I have an idea that I would like to trace uh, bibliography and patents through the work of Watley and Lafontaine and a continuation of the bibliographic bureau that they started in 1895 and then work my way forward, both backwards and forward. so um, and that is a direct, I, I would say, direct inspiration from what I came across in that chapter on, on bibliography or the League of Nations.
1: Well, best of luck on that project. Um, thank And you. thank you again for making time to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a, very much a pleasure for me, too. And thank you for having me. Of course. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.